You are a melody. I hear you all the time. It really gets to me. It's always on my mind. You are my favorite song. Hey guys, welcome to the podcast. It's doing it for Bartolo. On the show this week, we have a man who needs no introductions, uh, one of the most influential sports writers of the last 50 years, uh, the Baseball Hall of Famer, Mr. Peter Gammons, is on Bartolo Pod today, and I'm so excited for you guys to listen to my conversation uh, that I had with Peter. Peter spent a couple, uh, about an hour with me on the phone uh, on a Sunday morning a couple of weeks ago, and I'm so excited, again, to have you guys uh, listen to this conversation. Peter's obviously had a really, really uh, colorful uh, illustrious career in sports writing and he, he has a lot of w- wisdom to share and a lot of great stories and anecdotes to share as well so I'm really really excited for you guys to listen to our conversation if this is your first time listening to the show welcome make sure to go back and check out some of the archives and uh, the episodes that we've had on previously uh, some pretty great guests and some pretty great conversations uh, and you guys are going to want to listen to those uh, make sure to head over to iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts and hit the subscribe button uh, and leave us a rating on iTunes as well because it really does help get out the word about the show. Uh, you can follow the show on Twitter at Bartolopod. If you're listening to this episode, I assume you already follow Peter Gammons, but he's at PGammo on Twitter. You can also follow me on Twitter at IamJuneLee. And I really don't want to talk any longer because uh, this this conversation with Peter was pretty great. And I'm really excited for you guys to listen to all the wisdom that he shared on the show. So, without further ado, this is the Baseball Hall of Famer, the venerable Mr. Peter Gammons. Hope you guys enjoy. When I, I remember when I started the podcast, I was coming up with a list of people that I wanted to have. And uh, this man on the line, it was number one on my list. Peter Gammons is on the phone. Uh, Peter, how are things going? It's going great. It's it's uh, it's always fun during the baseball season, and this is the draft week. So, <clears throat> I for some reason um, I've always been fascinated by draft, minor leagues, Cape Cod League. Um, matter of fact, I started the whole idea of a column by doing majoring in the minors, writing about the Sox French system uh, back in 1970 or 71. So. Um, I, I get very excited when draft rolls around. Well, we'll get to get to that in a bit, but I, I want to start from the beginning. You grew up in Grand, Massachusetts, uh, it's forty miles outside of, of Boston, about. And uh, how did you kind of get into sports media and, and sports? And, and at what point did you, did you start to consider journalism as as a career? Well, it, it actually, it's kind of a funny thing. I I, um, I did write for. At Groton School, they had something called a third form weekly. And uh, so, yeah, when I was in the ninth grade, that's the third uh, third form at Groton School, um, I did write some game stories. As a matter of fact, um, ironically, my mother found, um, like 30 years ago, found the first article I ever wrote for the third form week at Groton, or Governor Dahmer or something, football game. So uh, um, I actually still have that at home after all these all these years, and uh, Lord knows what year that was, probably 1960. But uh, uh, yeah, so I still have. I I really didn't think of it that much when I went to college. But the interest, like, I I was sat, always fascinated by politics, for not running but being in politics. Um, 
And I thought about music. I thought about a lot of things. And, and uh, uh, my freshman year at Chapel Hill, um, the drinking age was 18, so I wasn't violating anything. I was in, I was having a beer and uh, sitting next to Patrick, who ended up like me at Sports Illustrated. And uh, he was from Buffalo originally. And Christ, I'm from around Boston. And the Bills were going to play the Patriots that Sunday, and they were, they were tied for first place. So we got into a discussion and argument about Jim Nance versus Cookie Gilchrist. And she convinced me to start to, you know, at least try. So I, I went over to the Daily Tar Hill, which at the time was a huge, I mean, there was like uh, 16, uh, sometimes 24 uh, pages and full size. It was really unusual um, college newspaper. Mm-hmm. So I covered, you know, some soccer games. And I remember uh, covering them and <laughs> writing my game stories on yellow line pad. So that's, <laughs> I mean, it's so, so it, today you couldn't even conceive of that, but that's how I started. And uh, um, it was Curry Curry Patrick who got me started on it and uh, um, covered more and more. And then uh, I also, I covered a lot of basketball and, um, and Dean Smith was forever uh, pushing me to, into the business, so I owe something to him too. I mean, at what point did you start to be like, "Oh, this is something that I can actually do with my life. I can, I can write about sports." I think my sophomore, junior year, or whatever, um, and then uh, um, I decided to uh, apply for an internship at the Globe. Uh, to really find out how much I'd really enjoy it. And um, the, the it was, I, rep- I got there, because um, of course, 48 years ago today, um, with my face, Bob Ryan, we were both starting an internship same day. And it was a day at approximately 3.15 in the morning, Boston time, uh, after Bobby Kennedy won the California primary, he was assassinated. So that was a huge story. At the time, there was a morning globe and an afternoon globe. Uh, there was a late stocks edition. So Bob and I reported, and rather than going through some sort of process of being told this is what the program is, they threw us right into work and told me to do the American League and Bob to do the National League and find out what each team was going to do to observe um, RFK's assassination. Mm-hmm. And uh, so when the late stocks edition came up at 3.30, uh, Bob and I had a uh, cold byline on the front page of the paper. So, <laughs> so <laughs> I, hope, I hope the same thing happens for you. <laughs> but but it, it was, it, you know, we always joked, you know, Bob used to say, it was un, unfair. Your name came first. It was, it was because of the alphabetical. That's okay. <laughs> it is. It, it's an amazing thing. We went down uh, afterwards. We stopped at the Erie Pub in Dorchester uh, to have a beer to celebrate our first day in the business and to and uh, to sort of discuss. You know, this isn't too bad. This business. It's kind of fun. <laughs> it's an amazing start to it all. 
<laughs> I mean, what do you what do you remember about that day? I mean, how do you remember feeling about that day? You know, starting at, at your hometown newspaper and immediately being on the front page. Um, in many ways, I, I was. There's a little bit of disbelief. It was a, a tremendous amount of adrenaline and excitement, um, and um, it was. I you know. I, I remember we. Had, I think we used to be able to get like. Uh, 20 cent brass and, and uh, 25 cent hot dogs at the Erie Pub in those days. Long before Ronald Reagan made it famous. And uh, it, we just, we, we sort of discussed this is really what we want to do with both um, fanatical sports fans. And then you, you get in there, you get into that real world, even though we hadn't been out on assignment doing stories. It's still all of a sudden we're in the newspaper building and, and uh, it, it's it, it just it was that there was a sense that um, you know from other people from us this is what we're going to do our our lives were, our decision on what we're going to do for was made that day mm. just by being there and being around <laughs> a lot of sports writers who's really all we knew were their names. Mm-hmm. But it was, uh, and the great thing about um, the Globe, and I often talk about how he, he, he hired so many young people at the Globe. It was very, he completely changed the culture. And um, part of it was that when you were an intern, you did a lot of work. They sent you out and you covered, you know, whether it uh, was, um, you know, I remember guest tournament at the country club, or I got to uh, I got to cover Boston soccer team, which um, meant that I got to cover a game with Pele playing at Fenway Park, mm-hmm. which was pretty incredible. Mm-hmm. And um, they had a swim. I did features at Fenway Park. I did sidebars. Uh, um, so it was. Uh, they had us five six days a week mm-hmm. and that was just i mean i'm <clears throat> i'm not a, a journalism believer <clears throat> excuse me as a course um i i think you have to get out and write. i was not a journalism major in college i i wrote for the daily car here but that was my experience mm-hmm. more than being given you know 18 facts and see if you can put them in, it, it makes sense of them in, in the story but um globe just afforded such an opportunity, and and the following January, Fran Rosa, the sports editor, called me, and um, uh, I um, <laughs> can you start on Monday? I said, well, I have to finish Sam and then drive up from Chapel Hill. How about the following Monday? He said, fine. <laughs> so there I was, <laughs> um, in, in in no time. And then, uh, you know, it was great fun covering things like the, uh, I loved covering high school and college basketball. And right away, I think one of my first assignments was to, uh, to uh, the, the tournament, it used to be the high school basketball tournament was played at Boston Garden. And uh, my, my first day covering that, which was about 15 days into my career, um, got to uh, Meet Jim Calhoun, who was managing, I'm coaching Chatham High School, Ron 
Curry, and this is just a lot of fun. I really have, I have such fond memories of the early days of the Globe. I loved covering high school baseball. Mm-hmm. And I used to say, well, just be in the office and take the scores and write it that way. I would say, no, I'm going out. Mm-hmm. Hence, um, right away, I began a, uh, um, a, let's see, I'm trying to figure out how many years it's been, but it's 40, 46 year relationship with Jerry Remy. As Ryan once said that there was no person named Jerry Remy. I created it. I began to Somerset, Massachusetts, the couple of high school. And, uh, when no one else even had an honorable mention for all scholastic, I had one up for player of the year, <laughs> which you never forget. <laughs> Uh, I mean, at any point, did you, did you like, ever feel intimidated? Just, it, it is the, the GLOW. The GLOW is an institution. And, of course, I, th- I think you've you've helped make it part of uh, an, an institution. But at that point, uh, you know, you're working for your hometown paper covering sports. Uh, I mean, how did you, you know, feel about that? Um, I think it's because the paper made us feel uh, we're all part of um, a growth company. I mean, that was one of the things that made Winship a genius as an editor. I mean, he would send these handwritten notes, you know, encouraging, you know, I could write a story about, um, you know, uh, uh, Durfee High School playing, um, playing Wellesley High School in baseball. And he might send a, give me a, a handwritten note about, I really like the way you did this, the way you did that. There was so much encouragement. Fran Rosa and Ernie Roberts, the sports editors, and, and they, I don't know, they, it, it, it was just was so much encouragement um, to all of us. And, you know, it was also a lot of fun going out, going to Fenway Park or going to Pawtucket or going to uh, uh, Pawtucket. When I first started, was double A. I went down there and watched Carlton Fisk and people like that play. But it was just... You know, when you're in your, you know, you're not even in your mid twenties. If you're twenty two, twenty three years old, and able to do these things, it's just the, the fun of it, the joy. Uh, something that, you know, hopefully it's it's remained with me. It's not obviously it's burned the same way now at the age of seventy one, but I still love it. I love being at the ballpark. I love the people uh, that that I get to uh, talk to and write about or talk about. Mm-hmm. So you you start covering the Red Sox in 1971 for the Globe. Uh, your first year on the B, what do you remember about that? Well, actually, uh, the, the, when I really started was September of 71. I mean, 72 was my first spring training and full season. But the fun of that September of 71, the Red Sox had been slowly decayed and fallen apart since the end of, of 67 and by, by 71, they were not a very good team. And what happened was that they brought up, uh, in September, they brought up Fisk, Nikes, uh, Ben Ogilvy, Rick Miller, um, a whole bunch of you, John Curtis, Lynn McLaughlin, all these young players. And that made it a great deal of fun because they played really well. And uh, Eddie Caskill let them play, and they, they played very well, and it created a lot of excitement, 
not only with fans, but with, uh, within the organization. So it was great fun to, to cover that. And then the next year, you know, go to spring training, which I was there for the last game before the first strike. <laughs> I said something about where I started out there. It was uh, The first strike in baseball was 72 at the end, at the, on March 31st. And uh, the Red Sox-Tigers in Lakeland was the last game that day. So the strike came. Bud Collins and I were together in the uh, press box in the Choker Marshawn Stadium and got to and got to be able to. So, uh, we hope this isn't the last game ever played. But uh, um, it wasn't really. I mean, it was such a young team. I was a lot younger than anybody else, regularly covering the team, which I think was an, uh, an advantage for me. There's no question, it was an advantage. I got to know those players really well, and uh, so it's sort of growing with them uh, from '72 until they won it in '75 was is almost like being part of it because the uh, the players were so enthusiastic, and you know there wasn't free agency until after the seventh game in '75, so uh, um, it, it was. It was never, a, you know, sort of a, a feeling that it's a very material business. Mm-hmm. It was really all about baseball and baseball, period. Mm-hmm. And there were there were also some veterans. I mean, Yaz was fascinating. Um, they had their cliques and their problems at times. But, you know, well, I guess a lot of teams do. I mean, that's reality. But um, uh, it was it was really fun to watch it. I was very naive in certain ways. I don't think I really believed some of the internal strifes there were. I mean, right away, I think it was, it was, it was either 72 or 73, there was a whole Fisk versus Reggie Smith and Kari Ostremski, the Kidding Arrows versus Reggie Smith and uh, Kari Ostremski, all these little things that uh, opened my eyes. There were stories we had to report on because there were splits and, and, uh, nasty things said about people. So it was a, it was a meeting experience to, uh, to, to the world of Boston journalism and the Red Sox. So we'll get back to Peter in just one second, but first a word from our friends over at SeatGeek. If you've ever been frustrated trying to buy tickets online, I've been there. Most sites make it really complicated and try to sneak in these huge fees at checkout, and that's why you need to check out SeatGeek. They've made it easier than ever to buy and sell sports and concert tickets. SeatGeek is the only place I ever go when I look for tickets to a game or concert. I have the SeatGeek app on my phone, and I just used it the other day to look for tickets for a national Washington Nationals game while I'm in D.C., SeatGeek has taken all the work and hassle out of shopping for tickets. They pull all the tickets available on other sites into one place so you can save time and never miss a deal. You can even set alerts for upcoming games and SeatGeek will let you know if ticket prices fall. Even better, every single ticket on SeatGeek is given a grade based on its value so you can immediately find underpriced seats. And before you buy, you can use SeatGeek's detailed maps to see the view from your seat. Best of all, SeatGeek is always honest enough for about the price, and unlike StubHub, SeatGeek shows you the full ticket price from start to finish and never surprises you with huge fees at checkout. Listeners to Doing It For Bartolo can get a $20 rebate off their first SeatGeek purchase, so in order to do that, download the free SeatGeek app, go to the settings tab, click add a promo code, enter promo code BARTOLO, SeatGeek will send you $20 after you made your first SeatGeek purchase, so make sure to download the free SeatGeek app. Enter promo code Bartolo today. You will not regret it. 
make sure to support SeatGeek and thank them for supporting the show. And without further ado, back to Peter Gammons. What are some of your favorite uh, stories from some of those early years? Well, I always thought it was funny, and uh, and it's it was really people talk about the Red Sox Yankee uh, rivalry. Um, the Red Sox Yankee rivalry really was all about Munson versus Fisk. Um, um, in September of '71, there was a ball that Munson had gotten jammed. It kind of fallen back and hit a, a ground ball to. Uh, wide of first base. I don't remember who was playing first. I don't think it was Yaz. He was still in left. I don't know. I can't remember. But um, anyway, it, start, it started a, uh, um, you know, it was a chance for double play. They didn't complete it, but just beat Munson down the line. It was, it was, it was intended to be a 3-6-2 double play. And uh, just beat Munson down the line. Fisk was the patrician, the good-looking guy. Next year on the cover of Sports Illustrated as a rookie. And Munson was was jealous of him. And uh, it, was, it was an amazing... Um, <laughs> it was an amazing rivalry. And one time, Marty Pell, the then the Yankee PR guy, um, put in notes, I think it was 1973, the pregame notes... The months, all the different things. Munson was first in the league in this, and, but he happened to put in the notes that Munson was second in the American League among American League catchers in assists uh, with whatever it was, uh, three behind Carlton Fisk. Munson that day intentionally dropped like six uh, strike threes, so he could then throw to first to get an assist, and then he would gesture at. Up to the press box, and and the the biggest fight easily ever between the Red Sox and the Yankees was on August first, nineteen seventy three, and uh, uh, John Curtis. It was two two in the ninth, and John Curtis was pitching to Gene Michael with Felipe Alou on first <clears throat> and uh, Munson on third. They tried a suicide squeeze, and Gene Michael missed the bunt, and Fist just just crushed and elbowing him out of the way um, with Munson coming down the line. And Munson jumped up and, and kicked Fisk in the chest. Uh, and anyway, it was a, ended up in a wild brawl. It took like half an hour to, to break up. Fisk was actually punching Munson with a ball in his hand. I actually have a picture up on my wall in my office at home, um, a picture of, um, of, of Fisk uh, unloading a punch. And what's when I was at ESPN, people said, "Well, we don't remember that." <clears throat> I said, "Excuse me." There's a reason uh, because it was, it was a Thursday afternoon um, in 1973. Neither team telecast, you know, broadcast the game, so there was no live TV. And it's like, yeah. <laughs> uh, secondly, um, in those days the local stations would come over and shoot the first couple of innings and then go back to the station. So they had some video for the six o'clock news. So there was no camera there at the game. We, <laughs> we were always trying to find that film at ESPN and, and it doesn't exist anywhere. I mean, when Richard Johnson doesn't have video, it doesn't exist. And so, 
the greatest the greatest fight in Red Sox Yankee history. There's other pictures, um, like the one I have up on my wall. Um, there's no proof of it because <laughs> there's no video. <laughs> Which is like hard to imagine, given uh, how everybody has their cameras out twenty four seven today. I know. I mean, it probably would be uh, that fight would have had. Uh, uh, there probably would have been about. 20,000 phones rolling on the video of it. You mentioned that you were, you said you were naive in, in the early years. What were some of your mistakes, uh, your biggest mistakes during that time? Um, there were a couple of things that, that um, for instance, um, I think one of them was, I remember um, in... 73 or 74, it seems to me, it must have been 73, because Reggie Smith was still there. Bill Lee, um, who would say anything, <laughs> um, had a way of uh, aggravating the more experienced and veteran players in the team by being outrageous. He was really funny. I mean, it was also, I, I loved covering him, because it was, it was, you never knew what he was going to say or do. But um, when the game, he had beaten the Brewers, it was a day game, and I did not know. I wasn't there, but we're out on the road, and on the second day of the road trip, uh, found out that uh, Fred Champa of the of the uh, Record American had a story about after that game when Lee was supposedly going through the line and shaking hands up near the clubhouse. When he reached out to Reggie Smith, Reggie Smith cold cocked him. And they had a big fight. And I, I didn't know about that. And it was one of those things that I felt stupid. But at the same time, it just wasn't something that um, I really thought would happen. You know, I just, it, it didn't dawn on me. I realized there, was, there were inner club politics. But I didn't realize uh, that anything could, like that would happen. But I certainly found out. <laughs> and I remember Freddie uh, Champa, who was a wonderful man, saying to me, you know, listen, this is just experience. You can't have every story. I said, yeah, but, you know, I mean, I, I still can't believe that, um, that, that it was missed. But I, again, it took two or three days to get out. But at the same time, I felt very badly about it. I mean, I think part of what uh, makes a successful journalist, journalist is, is being competitive. And you're someone who's clearly got a, a desire to to be first with that story, especially in the in the uh, you know in the seventies and the eighties and the nineties. Uh, where do you think that competitive spirit comes from? Um, I think that it, in some ways that the competitiveness comes. I think it's what um, I think it comes from wanting to be a really good athlete. I mean, some of the most competitive people I know, I mean, Ken Rosenthal is unbelievably competitive. Buster Olney is incredibly competitive. I mean, there are, it, it's the nature of the business. And when you get into it, uh, it's not like who has the first tweet about whether the contract is for 62 million or 63 million, but um, there are stories that, you know, you want to be able to break and so forth and, and you want to know about. And, uh, uh, I used to think writing game stories, I mean, I understand that, you know, when I was writing game stories in, in the 70s, 
was with a typewriter and paper, um, and you hand it to someone to send. Uh, there were companies that would would uh, they had telecopier machines and they would send over to the newspaper um, the stories. And so to go down, there was no elevator at that time. To go from the press box down to the clubhouse, talk to almost everyone you could talk to, possibly talk to, uh, and it wasn't. You know, there weren't those awful podium post-game press conferences. I mean, you, you went and di- you went to players yourself. It wasn't uh, sort of the group journalism that, that they now try to hoard everyone to. Uh, get that done, go back upstairs, and get get the story 1,000 to 1,200 words written and get it in uh, in an hour and 10 minutes. There was a competitiveness to that. And uh, it just I used to think that there was such a it was a great thrill um, about you know doing it and trying to do it well. And I remember talking to John Curtis, uh, who was actually a journalism major at Clemson, and did a lot of writing. And we used to talk about he used to talk about how his career would have to end as a pitcher just when he, he couldn't get anybody out and they told him you, you can't even show up for spring training. And he said, even if I have a five ERA, there's a thrill of walking up that mound to, uh, to see what, what will happen. And I, I think that you know, we talked about how we both had the same, there was that, that, that same perspective of the, the, how the adrenaline worked with each one of us. And, uh, that was the fun of it. And I think it was very similar to what John did and what, what I did. Mm-hmm. Uh, you started writing your Sunday Notes column uh, in 1972, I believe. Uh, yes. And there's a quote in the, in this article from the Cape Cod Times that uh, you really – your phone bill was three times the size of other, any other reporter in the newsroom, which is, uh, which is, pretty, which is pretty crazy. Um, at what point did you kind of start gathering sources? I mean, how did you start building up sources? And, uh, you know, the Sunday Notes uh, was a pretty revolutionary format uh, and was something that began to be copied around the country. Uh, how did you kind of see that grow? And, you know, how did you start to develop, you know, who you talk to on a, on a weekly basis? Well, you know, it... it... Dick Young, writing for the Daily News or Post, um, used to do, you know, dots and dash type columns. Uh, it, it wasn't specifically on baseball. Baseball would be part of it. But I always used to think, you know, that would be a great way. I mean, I, I would love to read that as a baseball fan. I wish they had that just for baseball. So um, Fran Rosa, as a sports editor, was good enough to allow me to do the majoring in the minors. And uh, so I would write every Sunday. I wrote a, a, um, a dots and dashes type of column on the Red Sox farm system, which, of course, fascinated me anyway. And uh, I can remember writing wonderful things about Bob Montgomery, <laughs> things like that. But um, that's how it kind of got started. And then we talked about doing it on the major leagues. And, you know, people were terrific about it. Roland Heeman. Um, all the Harry Dalton, uh, then with the Angels, then later the Brewers. I mean, as general man, they love the idea too. I mean, Harry actually was a had been a newspaper man in um, in Springfield, and uh, before going into baseball. And I, 
the people in the game were really helpful. I was very lucky to break in with uh, Eddie Casco as a manager because he was unbelievable in the way he would point out things. Yeah, I wouldn't do this. I wouldn't, you know, I just, he was a great help to me to understand my relationship with players, with management, how to, how to, how to operate within a, a clubhouse. Uh, he knew I, you know, I, I love the people. It's a certain way of doing things. And at that time, um, what also helped was that uh, from the 70s until right through until I, I did have a, a year at Sports Illustrated, but then uh, I went back again a year later. Um, so when I left the Globe for good after 2005, um, when traveling, I mean, I used to go to the ballpark at noon and would go out and work out and shag and basically throw some BP and um, media was very different. There wasn't a three thirty uh, in the afternoon uh, allowed entry. You could go in the clubhouse anytime, um, and it really helped me understand how baseball players think. Which George Will always used to tell me. That's really important because I because he always thought that. Um, while people criticized him for knowing too many people, politicians too well, I said, in my business, you have to know how politicians think. And I think it really helped me understand it and also understand how incredibly difficult the game is on a major league level. It looks so easy from the press box and from uh, on television. And it's the game is so highly skilled. I can tell you, I, I, at uh, 2.30 in the afternoon, uh, when it was 100 degrees in Arlington, Texas, and uh, trying to shag with Dwight Evans was uh, a learning experience of uh, why 99.5% um, of us could never do, could never play in the major leagues. <laughs> um, I mean, at this point, so you have the Sunday Notes column, and, and that's taking off. W was there a moment for you where you felt like, hey, I'm, I'm doing pretty good for myself? Like, I think I, I might be pretty good at this. Um, no, I, I don't think I thought that way. I think I, it was more, um, that, um, I really wanted to just, I was having so much fun doing it and it was so novel. I just thought it was, it was great. So, um, I really enjoyed it. I mean, I, I think that, and also I have to tell you that another thing that really helped was being at the globe um, and again, the, the, the energy and the positivity in that paper was amazing. And, you know, Bob Ryan and Lee Montville and I all started right about the same time. And to me, Montville's still the best columnist I've ever read, uh, in sports. Um, and we all were doing what we, what we wanted to do. And it was, it was really evident that, you know, and we didn't have the, uh, the the burning desire to move on to something maybe more respectable. I actually did interview Time Magazine asked me to come in for the, to do be their sports columnist reporter, and I I loved the I was flattered, but I would have been bored to tears mm -hmm. to be honest. I, mean, uh, I don't I don't like horse racing anyway, but uh, um, I, I love the everyday 
the uh, the everyday thrill of the competition and getting to the ballpark and writing every day. Mm-hmm. I mean, how, how how do you how do you keep that up? It's I mean, being a baseball beat writer is a is a very tiring job, and the, and the travel schedule is insane, and the the hours are long. How did how did you maintain that? Well, it was very different and much easier then. And I say that even we used to have to carry those telecopiers um, beyond after game after for the afternoon globe after games. You have to send the copy from your hotel room. And the little thing would go six minutes and a beep, and I'd wake up and put the next page in. But I mean, we could travel with the team, uh, so it was much easier. Uh, we didn't have to be getting uh, commercial flights, you know, through t- uh, connection through Tidewater or something at six o'clock in the morning. Um, and also, we weren't responsible for sending in stories until right before the game, so you had time to gather your thoughts and do things. Now, you know, for a night game on, on the road, for instance, you had you'd write running uh, for the first edition. Uh, and then sub the story at the end. You had to do a notebook before the game, and you have to redo it after the game. Fine. But, you know, you didn't have to, to blog or tweet out lineups. And, um, I, I don't know today if I would... I'm not so sure how, I, how much I would love it today, just because I think there's, there's just so much work that goes into it what I call busy work. I mean, I really don't care about, you know, tweets. Um, this is a starting lineup tonight or, you know, one quote from uh, somebody behind a podium pregame. And, uh, and it, it, it takes away from the time spent with players, um, coaches, people in the game. I, I'm not, I, I came along at the right time. As much as, you know, I mean, June 15th, 1976, um, which was the big trading deadline before they had an agreement. So, you know, like 90% of the players in baseball could be free agents at the end of the year. And the Red Sox got Raleigh Fingers and Joe Rudy. We were in Oakland. Uh, Yeah, I stayed up all night during the uh, post-game and then the stories uh, for the afternoon globe. But, you know, I was young a lot younger and it was a, it was a historic moment in baseball because of all the trade Orioles and Yankees made the 10 player deal. Um, so those things were, I don't know. It, it, it was, it was to me, it's much easier. I, I absolutely marvel at the, the, the way guys today, you know, do their work and then around a, a, a you know, up at four o'clock in the morning on a plane at six um, because of the way air travel is. I, I don't, I sympathize with them. And I, I know that um, I wouldn't want to do it today. And I'm not sure how long I would have lasted. I mean, I'm very honest with myself. And uh, it, it's, I think it's far more difficult today than it was in the, in the 70s and 80s. I mean, at what point did you start to see that shift when you saw uh, kind of just the lifestyle become different and the access become different? Uh, at what point did that start to change? Um, 
I think really it started to change in the 90s. Um, and, the, and the whole access question, which really w- would frustrate me terribly, still frustrates me, and I know the Players Association wants to essentially keep the media out of the clubhouse uh, in this current agreement. Um, but I don't think I could have written the same way. Bob Ryan and I used to talk about our job um, covering the Celtics and the Red Sox, where at one point during the season, uh, allow readers to know every player on the team and really know them rather than just, you know, he's a left-handed hitter with his high fastballs. Um, to get to know it was our, our job was to um, essentially um, be the guy that brings the reader into the room or on the field or on the plane uh, with, the, with each player. And I don't think there's time to do that today. Uh, I really don't. I think it's very difficult. Um, and I think it's really important that newspapers have more, you know, each beat should have about three or four writers, in my opinion. Um, and even then, I look at the, at the Providence Journal. I read that every morning. And I think both, I mean, Brian and Tim are both phenomenal writers. Um, but it's, it's, I don't think one could do it alone anymore. I think it's impossible. And they both, they work exhaustive hours. But I think it's really smart that the Herald has three or four essential beat writers and uh, the Globe splits it up more and more as they go along. I, I just, I think it, uh, it's much more wearing now than it was then. Mm-hmm. And the access, I think, makes it much more difficult. I mean, John Farrell's kidded me several times about it when he has his one-hour press conference, which is basically to deliver and manage the news each day for the club. Um, and he, when he cuts out, you know, at like uh, 10 or 5 or whatever, uh, he'll always go, I mean, I knew you would be out here. You're not going to come listen to me. And I once uh, hope you're not offended. He said, no, you, this is like your private time with the players and coaches because you don't have to go in there. And it's true. I mean, that's what I like to do much more than uh, I have great respect for John. I thought Terry Francona was unbelievable the way he could do those press conferences, give people something to write about, and yet, you know, spin everything for the club forward. Mm-hmm. And, um, but, you know, I could, I could find that out easily. Mm-hmm. As you know, it's, you know it's, there are so many people that cover them but you don't have the time to, to spend privately with players and coaches and also see what players are trying to do, whether it's mechanically and uh, on defense, whatever. You can't, mm-hmm. can't be there to see how Mookie Betts goes and takes an intense infield drill with Brian Butterfield for 15 minutes, three, four days a week, because it's so important in terms of how he feels Falls uh, uh, singles or doubles in the outfield, mm-hmm. and he, he's working on how he improves being able to feel balls come up throwing without having to take two steps. And he does. To me, that's really part of the real fun of the game: the seeing what people do to make themselves better. And you can't do that covering a beat because you've got to be in there in case John Farrell drops the news that you know Hanley Ramirez isn't going to play anymore or something like that. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? 
I mean, what uh, what what have been some of the relationships for you with uh, players or just people around baseball that have been most rewarding for uh, you know personally and, and for your career? Um, there's been a lot. I mean, a lot, a lot of players that um, that I found fascinating. I mean, I've been I was explaining to somebody speaking in Washington a couple of weeks ago, and I was explaining the joy of being able to spend time with Ted Williams and Barry Bonds discussing hitting. And because they're so, Ted and Barry are so much alike. Um, and Ella were so much alike. And a lot of their theories were, were very, were the same. Um, their passion to talk about hitting and so forth. And they were, you know, it's like sitting down with, two incredible scholars uh, who also could execute. And uh, that those relationships, I mean, Ted was tremendous to me. I would say one of the people, another person that, that had a tremendous influence on me was Gene Mark. I remember in 1971, um, the Red Sox were playing Montreal, and somebody said to me, well, Gene Mark's not very pleasant. He, he's pretty tough. And, uh, so I went in there to talk to him, and he looked at me and he said, "You really love the game, don't you?" I said, "Well, yeah, yeah, I do." And he was like my godfather in the game. I mean, I just Joe Madden and I kid all the time about because Joe Madden was a dis- absolute disciple of Gene Mark for all his years from the Angels organization, and we kid about you know being the uh, the, the godsons of Gene Mark and how much. I, I could see so many things that, that Mark, that Madden does, that his teams do, that come right from the Gene Mark playbook. And uh, Mark used to occasionally, um, he would play out a game in his mind. And a couple of times, just, I would have breakfast with him, go out to the ballpark, and he'd sit there going through the whole game, situations and so forth. And uh, it was fascinating to learn from somebody who's, I'm not sure he and Buck Walter are the two smartest managers I've ever, ever known. And uh, it's to learn that at an early age, you know, in the business was a tremendous thing. I remember one time, Gene used to keep rule books, both in his house and wherever he stayed during the season. And then, um, you know, at the ballpark in, the, in his uh in his bathroom, he would have rule books in every bathroom. <laughs> so he continually studied them. And um, one day, we were, I was in Detroit. I was to Sports Illustrated at the time. I think it was 86. And um, he, uh, he was, we were talking about his rule books, and he said, well, you know, there are things, I, just as always good to be reminded, but, you know, if, if a, uh, a catcher, for instance, Use it. There's a ball in the dirt, get, gets away, um, and a catcher just sort of uses his mask to put the ball into his hand to throw it back to the pitcher. It's automatically two bases. Now I had never heard of that, and the incredible thing was, two nights later, uh, Tigers were winning in the seventh inning, and Mike Heath, the catcher, there was a ball in the dirt. There were two men on base, um, and uh, Mike Heath, there was a ball. Uh, uh, you know, all he did was just roll it to his hand 
with the uh, with the mask. No big deal. Sure enough, runner at second, home. Runner at first, went to third. Sacrifice fly. The Angels won. <laughs> it was fascinating to me that see I learned something from Gene Marks mm-hmm. again. Where, where do you think your passion for the game comes from? Because it's very evident. Just it, if you have one conversation with you, the way you talk about baseball is is incredibly intriguing and such it's such it's full of such energy that is i think incredibly unique uh when it comes to sports writing because uh, i think there's a lot of there's a lot of people who become tired of the day-to-day grind and they start to lose their love of the sport you seemingly after all of this these years have have not lost your your love for baseball which is admirable um where do you think that comes from i think it comes um, part of it is the way I was raised. My father was a, uh, a teacher, um, and he loved people. I mean, I, I was raised to, um, to absolutely just, everyone has a story and everyone's fascinating in one way or another. And my father was an extremely engaged, engaging man. And I, I think I got a lot of it from him. I think this his, his passion for fellow humans was a tremendous one, which is why he was a great teacher. Um, and guys, I went to school still. Like, people saw me on the street and said, <clears throat> oh, your father was my favorite teacher, blah, blah. And uh, I think that's part of it. I think just getting to know and realizing how human players are. But again, I go back to being able to be out on the road and working out. I mean, well, one of my fondest memories, we actually, I did a, uh, for all the Red Sox scouts and uh, rookie development people a couple, about three years ago, Dwight Evans, Jason Baratek, Pedro, and I did this, this panel, and I emceed it. And um, I, I told the story, and I wanted Dwight to then, then talk about it. But uh, July 3rd, 1980, uh, it was at least 100 Baltimore in so human it was ridiculous and Dwight at the time was hitting 179 he had been seriously beamed three times with what now he knows were very serious concussions but there were a lot of people who thought his career was over and um, he went out to hit in the old Memorial Stadium in Baltimore uh, Walt Riniak was there and uh, he was throwing to him and Cardi Stremski was there a very close friend of Dwight's and no, it was so hot, nobody wanted to shag. So I was the only person in the outfield shagging. And I came in, um, you know, picking up the, the balls and putting them in the in the, the uh, market, you know, basket that uh, the baseballs were always put in. And um, uh, I said to Walter, you know, it just kills me to see Dwight struggling like this. He said, No, I, I think uh, I think you may find that. Uh, this is an important day for him. So I didn't know why, because frankly, he didn't hit any balls hard uh, in almost an hour. And Yaz came out, said to me, Peter, you'll remember this day forever. And I said, why? He said, because Dwight learned balance. He made an adjustment in his, we've got him to, he's now going to be able to move. He's not going to be afraid of being hit. Um, this will be, this will change his career. The rest of the 80s, um, 
if you took, I, I one time I took the ten major offensive categories. This is before silly things like war, but um, and Dwight Evans was was the leader in more categories than Ricky Henderson, Mike Schmidt, Eddie Murray. Uh, he was in many ways, plus he was a great defender. So he was in many ways the best player of the eighties, and so naturally I remember that day because <laughs> he had told me I was, and uh, and. It's just how one small thing can remove a chip that allows um, the humanity in a player to move forward. And that was the amazing thing about that day. And it's still fascinating what goes on with players, what they think, how it affects them. I mean, I think it's, it's why, uh, you know, there are times when a guy like Rick Porcello or a lot of people go through periods in which they doubt themselves. And uh, so it's it's really fun to sort of watch that and knowing people as human beings, see those people like Pagoya and Eric Hosmer and, and uh, um, Buster Posey, people who are naturally great leaders, but um, you know, uh, affect other people. Uh, it, that, that stuff really is really interesting. I was talking to John Gibbons on uh, on Friday night. And he coached in Kansas City before he went back to the uh, Blue Jays. He was saying, yeah, you're right. Eric Hosmer is just about the best guy in baseball. And I said, we were just talking about his personality. Um, there are a couple, couple of guys in high school that he, uh, he had lived with his family because they had personal issues and uh, uh, what he's done for people all his life. And that's part of the interesting part of it. You know, I mean, especially guys like Hosmer, Pedroia, Posey, who have no interest in someone um, trumpeting their goodness and greatness. Mm-hmm. And I love that. Mm-hmm. I, I think that the, the finding the human, the, the human qualities of people is really interesting. That's something that I think is always fascinating whenever I talk to you is that you, you're, you're able to just kind of talk about people and baseball players in a way that I don't think most other reporters are able to. Uh, and, and you're able to talk with, with uh, you know, you have these relationships with so many people around the game that you know, have been built up over years and years and years. Um, what percentage of the information that uh, you get do you think you actually end up reporting? Um, I've often believed that relationships you build up with players um, – are stronger if 80 to 90% of what is discussed between you is off the record. Uh, and you could say, you know, can I use that? Um, but I think it, it really helps with relationships in the end. Now, it's a lot easier doing it when you're, you're doing television and doing online columns than having to cover the beat every day and ask, you know, um, some question about why, you're, why, why some guy's three for 27. Um, it's very different. And I, I understand that. And it's a lot more fun for me, I think. Um, but I, I think there's a great deal in just personalizing relationships and um, not having a notepad. I can remember years ago when the Tigers were great in the 80s. Um, there was a writer in the Detroit paper who always had his pad out in front of him whenever he talked to a player. And Jack Morris used to yell at him, but don't you understand that you, you don't actually hold a conversation. You're looking for me to, to write a story for you. And, you know, I'm frankly, I, I 
That's why I don't really talk to you. And the guy didn't get it. And I don't blame him. He's a really good man. But, um, you know, Jack was one of those guys like Kirk Gibson and, and Dan Petrie. They, they, they were tremendous raconteurs and loved to talk about the game and loved to talk about the, the, the culture of the Tigers and Sparky Anderson and everything. But, you know, they just, they didn't want it, you know, they didn't want someone to be writing down every one of their, their quotes. And um, if you can do both, it's great. I mean, I think it's what made, you know, you look at Buster and uh, Jason Stark and, and um, Richard Justice was phenomenal at it. I mean, there, there are ways of un- about ships and knowing what and what that trust mm-hmm. um, between player and writer. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think it's, I think you learn so much more about the, the, the bigger picture of what you're covering. Mm-hmm. If you can understand how to do that. And I think there are a lot of writers who are really, really good. Tyler Kepner is great at it. Um, I think it's, it's just, uh, <clears throat> something that's very important. Mm-hmm. I mean, Ken Rosenthal is great at it. Mm-hmm. It's, uh, um, it's a hard thing to learn because there's so much pressure to, you know, get a good quote in there on your, in the blog or uh, on Twitter every day. Mm-hmm. And it's, uh, I think it's harder to, to be able to build those meaningful relationships today than ever before. Mm-hmm. Uh, the way that information uh, is presented has, has changed, you know, from the, from the beginning of your career to where we are now uh, in many ways, you went to ESPN uh, in the nineties uh, and that really changed the way that, reporters are kind of viewed on television and the way that information is presented. What do you remember about kind of that time uh, as you, as you headed off to the four letter network? Well, um, you know, I was the first newspaper guy. Will McDonough had, had done it. I was, I was the second one, but I was the first one at ESPN and um, John Walsh. Um, I was John Walsh's. Um, I, I, he never believed it was an experiment. But he used to tell me, you're just going to do on television what you've been doing newspaper and magazines all your life. Um, and it really helped me as far as um, getting into that, into that experience. Just think about, just talk about baseball when you're on camera. Don't worry about, you know, um, don't worry about the formality of it. Uh, and um, there were times when it wasn't easy. There were people who have been raised in television or in broadcast media that did not like the idea of someone coming in, a newspaper guy coming in. And um, so there were some, there was some discomfort, but at the same time, because John Walsh was running ESPN, um, it, uh, and and he, you know, he was, um, he came from the print as well as television media. Um, you know, I, I had someone at my back at all times, and uh, Walsh is one, of, is one of the smartest people I've ever known, and his vision of what ESPN should be, he's really responsible for building it, um, and he's he's responsible for my branching out and sort of changing careers without changing careers, if you know what I mean. Mm-hmm. I mean, and uh, he really allowed, you know, the 20 years there were great. Um and, and but Walsh was, I mean, he just, he's, he's not like anybody else I've ever known. I mean, he created the Sunday football show, pregame shows, um, the studio show on CBS. 
He was they were the first people to do it. That was John Walsh's creation. Mm-hmm. He was editor of Rolling Stone for a while. He's just a fascinating man and great person. Mm-hmm. I mean, how did you see the industry change uh, as you know television became much uh, much more popular, and then the internet started to rise, and then you see the the start of Twitter and and blogging and all that stuff. How did you kind of live through that? Um, it made my life much easier because I didn't have to on Sundays run from my house in Brookline to Harvard Square to get nine or ten Sunday papers and then put them under my arm and run back along the Charles River with them. <laughs> so it's a lot easier having the business the way it is today. Um, I just think we all gradually change and learn from um, how things, how they, how they, how everything moves. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of the the more amusing parts. Uh, I mean, you, you obviously have a a big Twitter account, and uh, you, you've broken news on there. Uh, but one of the more amusing parts of it, and some of your most popular tweets have come from your pocket tweets. Uh, where, where, oh yeah. Uh, <laughs> I should learn never to. I should learn to never put my phone in my back pocket when I'm running. But I did, but I haven't done that yet. <laughs> um, and it's always really funny to me when when a pocket tweet goes out. It's always instantly like a thousand retweets. It's all. It's immediately all <laughs> over the place. I never read the um, the responses to what I tweet. So it. it uh, I just figure. I don't. I mean, I, it might aggravate me. I have friends of mine who are really good in the business. They get really mad about people, you know, replying. You just can't worry about it. So I don't. <laughs> but it is funny once in a while that the the uh, the, uh, the things that the, the letters will come off on my uh, um, come out as tweets. How in the world did that happen? I've never figured it out, and I've never taken the, the, the I've never taken the phone out of my pocket. So it's I guess it's going to continue uh, until I just shut it all down. <laughs> Uh, how have you kind of adapted to the internet age? Because it's, it's, you know, there's lots of, of writers who have uh, rejected kind of using the internet and Twitter and blogs, and, and they speak kind of condescendingly about it. Um, but you've seemingly embraced it, and, and, you know, you're someone who cites a lot of advanced statistics as well. How have you kind of adapted to all of this information kind of being at your fingertips? Well, I, I think it's, it's really a help. I mean, I go through... Twitter because, I mean, there's a lot of information that breaks on there. There's a, there's a great deal um, on the Internet that, that you get that you, 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 you wouldn't get for a week, um, you know, 20, 30 years ago. So it's just adapting to knowing what's going on, and it's the best way to follow news. Mm-hmm. And, uh, um, you know, I don't, I don't go and blog a lot and I don't I don't try to be as timely um, as I once would have been but at the same time I think we 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 all have to adjust to it and also it's a it's a much easier way to get information today is to to, to you know trade rumors.com and, and Twitter and things like that um, there, there's I mean within minutes there's so much out there mm-hmm. I mean it, it seems like it's been Two months to all the James Shields rumors for the White Sox started. I remember thinking when it first started, how are we going to figure out? Because I mean, nobody's going to pay James Shields what the Padres signed him for. So how are they going to figure out how to do the money? And it took, what did it take, a week? It took a week to figure out the money. It wasn't ever the players. It was just 
figure out how do you how do you do all the money and it's you know <laughs> but it's it's still you know it's still great to be at you know, whatever it was yesterday four fifteen in the afternoon and you know it comes across on my phone uh, that uh, James the deal with James Shields and the White Sox has been worked out mm-hmm. and there's a blessing to that I'm thankful for it so I'm still interested in news and I you know I mean. Again, I mean, I, I go, you go over to the out-of-town news in, in Cambridge and get all the Sunday papers and, you know, or you get them on the road. I mean, Seattle's a great, was a great coffee and newspaper town. And sometimes they'd be a week old, but you'd find stuff that, you know, you hadn't seen anywhere else and things you could build off of. Today, they're available to you every, within hours every day. Mm-hmm. Uh, you, you've obviously been reporting in, in the journalism industry for a long time. Uh, how have you managed your professional life uh, with your personal life and, and with your health as well? You, you, you know, you had a brain aneurysm in, in 2006, which was a, a big scare to, to you know, the the entire baseball community. Um, I mean, I, I certainly, uh, I don't work anywhere near as far. I get up very early. Um, but I like to, I find those are uncluttered hours. Um, you know, nobody's going to call you between 4.30 or 5 and 7 in the morning. <laughs> so you can work without interruption. Um, but, you know, at, at 70 years old, I, I clearly did not work the uh, uh, the intense schedule that I once worked. So I've learned to adjust and, and stay uh, stay reasonably healthy. Mm-hmm. Uh, but in, in, in the, in, in your, in your prime years, um, how did you kind of manage that? I didn't sleep a lot. Um, it, you know, it just, it was adjusting. I was always pretty tough as far as, uh, being able to get up and, or, you know, um, deal with lack of sleep. Um, but I, I, yeah, I could, I couldn't do, I couldn't put in the hours. Like I said, there were times when, um, six o'clock in the morning would roll around, and I was just finishing getting the, the uh, afternoon globe stuff in. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, whether it was uh, the trade deadline in 1976 or the, uh, the, a trade of Fred Lynn to the Dodgers at the winter meetings in 1980, um, whatever. You know, it uh, was yeah, nineteen eighty. You, you just also you, you just you, you just learn to to deal with it. Today, I I wouldn't be able to do that. Mm-hmm. Uh, you're someone, yeah. Uh, you're, you're someone who who is uh who's incredibly grateful with their time with a lot of young writers. Uh, you know, and, and are, are very accepting. I mean, you've you've praised a ton of writers on on this podcast alone. Um. What is, and I know you've taken a big mentorship role uh, with Buster, and he talked about that a lot when he came on the podcast. Um, what is what has kind of been the impetus for that? Um, your desire to to mentor some some young folks. Um, I just think it's important to 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 I, I, I mean when I w- was doing my speech at the Hall of Fame in, in two thousand five, I said in the end I'm still an ink stained wretch, and. Um, you know, I, I remember what it was like, and um, there weren't always people to help when I was young. And I've always felt that it's part of because of my um, because of my respect for and affection for um, the news business. 
Um, you know, at, at where I am in my career, I think it's very important to help other people. I think it's uh, to maintain the excellence. And I look around right now and, you know, I'll get up and, and, and read every day the coverage between the Globe, the Herald, and the Providence Journal, for instance. Um, there are, in my mind, there are a bunch of just absolutely wonderful writers covering the Red Sox. And uh, I don't think they get the credit they deserve, but, you know, it's, it's fun to see that. And that's, I think we should all just treasure the life we've had and, uh, and be respectful of it and respectful for those people who are trying to make it in the business now. Well, Peter, uh, thank you very much for your time. Uh, I really appreciate it. Okay, well, and uh, good luck to you tomorrow. Thank you. Have, have a good one. Okay, so thanks a lot. You are a melody. I hear you all the time. It really gets to me. It's always on my mind. You are my favorite song. Your love is justified. Thanks again to Peter Gammons for coming on the podcast, and I hope you guys enjoyed our conversation. I hope I did justice to his really amazing career in journalism. Peter's forgotten more about baseball than most people ever learn about anything. Uh, it's really, really remarkable just to see how generous he is with so many young people, uh, with so many young writers in his willingness to to give advice. And I really hope that came across in our conversation. And I'm so happy that he was able to make some time in his busy schedule to, to come onto this podcast and, and talk about his career. Because um, he, he's truly a remarkable person, both professionally uh, and personally. He's just such a great person. Uh, so I, I hope you guys enjoyed our conversation. If this is your first time listening to the show, thanks again very much for listening. Head over to iTunes and check out some of the, the previous episodes. Or you can head over, over, over to the Hardball Times and do that as well. Uh, please hit the subscribe button uh, to get our future episodes. And uh, make sure to leave us a rating on iTunes. Uh, it really does help us out a lot in getting the word out about the show. Uh, you can head over to Twitter and follow the show on Twitter there at Bartolopod. You can follow Peter Gammons on Twitter at pgamma, although I assume most of you are already doing that. You can follow me on Twitter at Lee and tell the friend about the show because it really does help us out uh, a lot when more people are listening. And uh, Peter gave some pretty great advice uh, that I think is worth hearing for a lot of people. So... Hope you guys enjoyed this episode. Again, I'm so happy that uh, Peter was able to make some time, and I hope you guys enjoyed this episode as well, as much as I did talking to Peter. Uh, So until next time, we'll see you guys in the next one. It's just a fire, yeah, yeah. It's just a fire. <laughs>